I read the research that came out that if you plant 3.04 trillion trees, you can stop climate change. Now, I'm <laughs> just like you, I'm a doer. Um, and I was basically putting my money where my mouth is. And I said, okay, there is a solution. It's right here in front of us. Let's do it. Ellie Orad is my guest on this episode of Inside Ideas, brought to you by 1.5 Media and Innovators Magazine. Tally is a change maker, an engineer, and a serial entrepreneur. She is the founder of OneTrillion.org, NGO, with a mission to collectively make a meaningful global impact by bringing communities together to plant trees and help fight climate change while mitigating the climate effects on small communities. Tally's first NGO came about after she saved the life of a dying baby, resulting in her founding an NGO to raise awareness to CPR education. Tally is also the co-founder of Wibble and the founder of Screen, a startup that helped balance technology usage between legitimate educational one and destructive addiction. She is a Thrive guest contributor the host of the Butterfly Effect podcast, and a frequent speaker. You can watch her latest TED Talk about the work at one trillion on TED.com. And uh, I would ask you to go out and watch it. And let, let's make it go viral. It's, it was fabulous that it went from a, from a TEDx to immediately to a TED Talk, and it's uh, getting good resonance already. Tally believes in the power of people to make a change and hopes with, with the help of the people she can help our planet. Tally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Excited to be here. So we, we have a lot in common. We're gonna, I'm going to let my listeners uh, up to speed about you and I and how we know each other. We, we belong to several groups and organizations together. Our paths have crossed at uh, Kinternet and at the H Farm in Italy, uh, uh, Roncaldo close to Venice uh, at, a, at the H Farm campus. And I believe that's also where we had our original discussion about your organization. Correct. Um, the thing that you don't know is um, I've also saved several lives. I used to... Um, uh, work for the American Red Cross as a, an instructor trainer. I'm a, a paramedic by training. Uh, started out as a medical assistant, went into pre-med and nursing, and and then um, actually as an emergency medical technician. But I actually owned a company when I was much younger doing first aid, CPR, first responder training, and, and a lot around... Uh, first response and CPR training, uh, defibrillation, adult and lifeguard certification and training, things like that. So that's really interesting and great to see that that's one of your first NGOs and how you raise awareness about that. So I really think that's important. And that's also a way that I, I look at the world is I, I wanna be prepared to help and serve humanity to help them uh, in time of need, but also to give them the tools and educations to do something, to respond, to have some kind of action to help humanity instead of just watching our world collapse into death and destruction to kind of have the tools. What can we do? Can we plant a tree? Can we do CPR if somebody's... Uh, uh, not breathing and doesn't have a pulse, can we do uh, the Heimlich maneuver or other methods to clear blocked airways and things to help people um, make it through this, this rough world that we're in, uh, although very beautiful. And so uh, I, th I think that's really neat. And we just barely saw each other. We were at COP26 together and, and we uh, saw each other at the ice hub. How was your experience? What did you think? At COP26 or at the ice hub? Because oh. 
So I went to COP26 to Glasgow with, well, first of all, I got in last minute, not because I didn't want to, it's because I was cautious for my emission. And then I realized somebody needs to represent the trees. There's gonna be a lot of talks and a lot of technology, but there is a technology that is exist, an ancient technology that is created by mother nature and it needs to get full center stage. And this was the reason I went. And we saw each other at the ice hub where we had the experience to see what will happen if we'll continue in a positive and, and take action and continue making the change. What will happen in 2030 when we'll look back and see that we succeeded? I do not want to think of what will happen if we don't. And I'm very hopeful. Um, I feel like a lot of the work will be done actually outside of the blue zone and not from the delegates, not from the top, but actually from small organization from the bottom. Um, youth and climate activists were present and I love that. And um, I, I'm hopeful because I want to be, because if there, I will not be, we won't get anywhere. Do you, do you, so did you participate in any of the Fridays for Futures or the climate marches or the, the protests or the strikes at all? I was with some of the Extinction Rebellion that were there. We, I sat with them, we talked. Um, it's at one point, uh, one of the things that bothered me a little bit, but um, was able to maybe mitigate is at one point, um, there were policemen passing by and they were saying, oh, here they are again. And for me, it was a little sad because at the end of the day, we're all here to make a difference and they are there to keep it. So we are all safe. They're just doing their jobs and it's not them or us. And I've heard a lot about them in terms of the blue zone as well. It's them and us. It's not. It's all of us with the same goal, with the same purpose. Yeah, I agree. I. I... The climate conferences should really allow everyone to have a seat at the table and a voice. And uh, it's just not that way. It's, it's extremely hard to get in. And it's um, a lot of pre-planning, advanced planning. Some, some people plan upwards, uh, you know, 12 months in advance. At the end of one COP, they're already planning to go to the next one. So COP 27 will be in Egypt. Um, and a lot of people are already starting to book and plan their, their attendance there to make sure the voice is heard. Uh, but it is extremely hard, hard to get in. Uh, although it was astounding, this COP had um, the most attendance and non-party delegates in attendance were actually the oil, coal, and gas industry, according to the Guardian Post that... Uh, came out just um, yesterday, uh, as a matter of fact, that more so than any other country delegation out there, which is uh, disheartening to me because there was a, 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 this uh, TED talk that was just before this COP um, in October where Dr. Johan Rockstrom was there. And we also had uh, Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion on stage with Shell Oil, Shell the shell company and they, the CEO actually said that, that they'd been disinvited, that they weren't invited as well. But then to hear that they had a lot of, so to say, different types of lobbyists and representation there in one way or the other was, was a little disheartening. I believe it's, it's a voice for everyone. It's everybody's allowed to be there, but um, to have It'd be such a hard meeting to get in and then to see that the representation is so strong from the oil, coal, and gas. The, the end result, and I don't know how much you were involved or heard about this, is that the COP26 kind of, as far as nations, delegations, negotiators went, 
failed us. We ended up somewhere between 2.3 degrees of warming and upwards of 2.6 with our nationally determined contributions and the ambitions and goals that they set fell short um, on, a, on a nation and country level. But on a private organization, public organizations, NGOs, and um, I guess, which, which was a big difference at this COP out of all others, there was representations, you know, obviously from big brands like Salesforce and Ikea and Google and Facebook and, and, and likes of the other corporate type of sponsorships that, that there was talks of 130 trillion US dollars, um, which is, I think it's 40 trillion, close to 40 trillion US dollars more than we need to achieve the sustainable development goals and to reach that 1.5 degrees of, of warming through just sustainable development infrastructure and monies needed to achieve those goals. So that that was great to hear. Uh, whether those that's greenwashing or ambition. So so what it tells me, long story short, is that uh, nation systems, the big brother or whoever those those country representations are failing us in their negotiations, but the private sector is really stepping up to the plate, and that's also what we saw during this pandemic. So during the pandemic all the country and nation ambitions towards the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals shifted to the COVID. Everybody was making sure we had vaccines and protection around COVID. And they kind of, the climate ambitions took the short cause and, and we kind of took a step back on, on our climate ambitions, but that all the private sector stepped up to the plate, not only met help with essential services of food and trees and climate things, but they also stepped up to the plate with the monies needed for our climate ambitions is what, what we see. And so that was kind of my big takeaway. I'd like to know, is, is this your first COP? And, and what other insights maybe could you share with us that you got out of, out of the COP from, from this experience and how did you feel about it? So first of all, I'll say yes, I was a newbie. We went back and forth. I asked you so many questions before I got on a plane and a train and a bus and and another train and walked and walked and walked so long. <laughs> um, and a boat also. Um, so it was, yes, my first COP, I was expecting a big mess. I was expecting a lot of people. I'm coming from the tech industry, so I know what big conferences look like. And I was expecting a messy a messy thing. I must say it wasn't. It was very organized. I got a chance to see a lot of people, meet a lot of people. Um, and you were talking about initiatives and during the pandemic and a lot of organizations and the private sectors doing a lot of things. So I started one trillion and, and maybe at one point we'll get to how it happened because that's a pretty funny, funny or maybe not funny story. Um, but we started and we were planting during the pandemic and a lot of organizations were planting as well. We see a lot of that for people, for climate, we are planting with small communities. And one of, one of our stories in, in Kenya, one of our planting sites is it happened in February and it was part of, um, a school project we were planting with the village and the kids. We added another project to educate the kids on how you sprout a seed, how you collect them, germinating the entire process. And when it was time to actually plant them, the kids couldn't, we started, the kids couldn't do it because the entire country was shut down. And there was a chance to actually bring, we brought all the, not we, not me specifically, obviously, all the people, the amazing people on the ground, um, brought the communities and the kids together and educate them on what is COVID-19? What is the importance of putting on, on a mask? Why do we need to wash our hands? Social distancing. So we took advantage in a way of 
our tree initiative project to teach them on how to stay safe. And another beautiful story that, that we got to hear is because of the lockdown, nobody could take care of those trees and nobody could maintain them. Again, the kids in the community were supposed to do that, but they were in lockdown. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the men in that community lost their job and community came together, collected money and gave him money. And he was able to break the curfew and go and take care of those trees. So going back to your question, is all of us coming together towards a goal? And you don't necessarily need the government to do anything because if you have NGO and the communities and people and other private sectors that can come together because it wasn't just one trillion in that. There were other organizations involved. We can do amazing things. Um, what, what was your biggest takeaway from COP26? And then I'll move forward more into one trillion. That we need to start collaborating and we cannot just rely on technology and money and we are here for one another. There, it's kind of like, I just read in The Guardian that um, they were defining the climate crisis as, think about it as a little girl is standing in the middle of the road and a bus is about to hit her. You'll see that, you'll obviously run and try to save that girl. This is the same thing with climate. The girl is, is our earth, climate is about to. So it's up to us to come and, and make the change and, and I feel like I, I feel like we saw it at COP that people are willing to take action, small individual companies, NGO, grassroots, indigenous people. We are all here, regardless. I'm just lacking a plan from either the UN or other countries. This is what I'm lacking from COP. I know there were agreement. I know there. Yes, we get money. What is the plan to how to execute? Because you can have a lot of money and reach nowhere. And you'll see it with, at least in, in uh, the tech world. So I hope this time I answered your question. Well, um, besides the ISUB uh, in um, Glasgow, were you at any other pavilions or side events that you can talk about? Um, so I was at a, a Planet Mark where it was an electric bus. It's a group of amazing people um, on an electric bus for, I think it's a month that they went all over the UK and explain the impact of climate change, what it means, why do we need to cut emissions, um, all those things. So that was one thing that I experienced. Um, there was also a pavilion of um, the sustainable home and the, there were a few things of how we can utilize and take advantage of local instead of importing. And then it's the local logging to build your house. Uh, it's growing um, local food and not going to, and I don't know, getting your banana from Mexico where you can get it from if you're in Europe where it grows uh, or just buy what's relevant for that time. Um, so a lot of those things. I love that. Inspiring, love that. yeah. Yeah, those, those are uh, two things that I, I didn't get to see. There was a lot of side events. There's a lot of different hubs and pavilions outside of the blue zone, outside of the green zone. There was the World Climate Summit, which what they called the Investment Cop. There was the sustainable innovation form um, also put on by the climate action hub there was the woods house the goals house put on by freuds and project everyone there was the new york times climate um, action hub or climate hub and um, was there as well yeah yeah there i mean there were so many uh, 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 side pavilions events it's almost really hard to see but it's also very difficult to get in because of the pandemic 
um, not only was there daily lateral uh, flow tests, but there was, you know, pre-tests and, and long lines and security. So it was, uh, it didn't make it easy. And then when you've got this mask, sometimes you, you get that, or I would think you'd get this feeling that you're kind of muffled. You can't really talk. You can't resolve the issues. But uh, surprisingly enough, it seems like communication went really well. The, the, the one last reason why I bring that up is the ICE hub is actually a Davos thing. It's a World Economic Forum thing from uh, uh, William McDonough from McDonough and Partners and uh, Michael Braumgart and Delta Development. They created the ICE hub, which is normally right outside the Steinberger Hotels kind of uh, um, it's a uh, almost a pop-up building that that uh, is glass and, and that's why they call it the ice hub uh, um, or ice house in, in Davos and in Glasgow they call it the ice hub but William McDonough was also there but it was also the kind of that fraction of people who normally go to the World Economic Forum kind of gathering at the ice hub there so for those who, who could not be there I want to give our listeners an insight of what it is to be on the fringes, what it's like to be at the protest, what it's like to, to see a, a, a big event like that, because it got more coverage than any other cop in history. And uh, uh, even though we fell short on, on a national level, uh, it was still an important meeting. Enough about all of that, because <laughs> we've been through it, but we now we've got to make sure the feats to the fire, the monies get uh, divided and we get some ambitions and things on place. Uh, I, I want to go back just a little bit. When we first were, were talking in uh, H-Farm in Italy, uh, and you were telling me about OneTrillion.org and, and what you were uh, doing, starting, beginning. You were asking me all sorts of questions. Tell me a little bit about that journey, what you thought from our conversations. You say, boy, that Mark's a crazy guy. And, and uh, <laughs> or what, what was the hope about the direction you wanted to go and, and how you began this whole process? So it's, it's really funny because it started at another event in France in Avalon. At Avalon and, uh, at Kinternet, yeah. Exactly. And... Um, we had a debate that was done a little different. And the debate was a few questions were put down and one has to ask a question. You're broken into groups of, of three. One has to ask the question, one listens while the other one answers. Um, and it's an interesting dynamic because now we're talking just the two of us, but we don't know how much people are actually getting from what we're saying. So that was a nice exercise. And when we finished that, we all went, we had lunch and a friend of mine put one of the cards on the table and he said, if you guys want to just go ahead. The question was, if there is one thing you can magically fix, what would that be? And at the time I was working on balancing screen addiction and disrupting the education um, market. And I had a technology startup working on all of that. And I was the, the last one to answer that question. And I was telling my friends, I honestly, I'm not gonna answer that because there will be nobody to educate. There will be nobody to teach anything if you don't fix up climate. So that was happening June 24th. On July 4th, I read the research that came out that if you plant 3.04 trillion trees, you can stop climate change. Now, I'm <laughs> just like you, I'm a doer. Um, and I was basically putting my money where my mouth is. And I said, okay, there is a solution. It's right here in front of us. Let's do it. And this is how One Trillion came about. I started with just planting for the sake of planting. Long story short, throughout each and every project, we've learned a lot on how to make it more impactful for 
people and for climate, uh, not just supporting the ecosystem and the biodiversity, bringing native trees. We wanted to make sure that those trees are gonna be taken care of and we can have somebody pay somebody to take care of those trees or we can create a synergy between the trees and the people. And this is how everything came about. And One Tree Land is where it is right now because we see that when there is a connection between us and nature, and when there, we are part of that ecosystem, we respect nature, we take care of nature, and we take care of those trees. Love it, I love it. So I know you, you usually like to ask me this question, but I'm gonna ask you this question. Um, do you have a favorite tree that you've really come ah, to love out, out of this process? <laughs> Yeah, Mark, that's not fair. It's like asking your mom what's her favorite child. <laughs> so I, it's interesting. Each tree has a different benefit. Each tree in the, in different country, I, I love them all. Um, but if I'll have to pick a favorite, and it's interesting, I um, you mentioned the Butterfly Effect podcast. This is the question I ask all my listeners at the end, and I. It's obviously not a scientific research by all means, but one of the things that I kept on seeing is everybody has a childhood relationship to a tree. And this is why my favorite tree is an avocado tree. When I was a child, I sprouted the avocado seed. And when it reached a certain size, I brought it to my grandma's house and we planted it together and it is still alive. So I would say the avocado. How about you? What that. is your favorite tree? I also have a very hard time deciding um, because I, I have a relationship to many types of trees. So I come from Germany's largest organic farmers, six generations of Germany's largest organic farmers. And we had lots of different types of trees. On, on our property and still do. And I'm also trained in permaculture and regenerative ag um, from Bill Mollison and, and Jeff Lawton and many other greats. Uh, just matter of fact, the podcast before yours was Alan Savory as well. So I'm a big, big fan of mixing trees and, and agriculture together to, to get that soil health, to get that, um, mycorrhiza and that uh, wood wide web going underneath the ground to, to make sure we have healthy soils, but also that vital uh, microbial system going on to, to just uh, replenish things. I, I would have to say, um, I, I really love lemon trees. I really love avocado trees. Uh, but I'm a big, huge fan of perennials. I love nuts uh, as well, but I love perennials, period. I, uh, right in front of me here, I have um, two avocado trees. I have uh, a mango uh, uh, that I've just done hydroponically here from a mango that I, that I ate. And so I, I like to farm. I like to do my own variations, so. It's really hard for me to say, but um, I would probably have to say the uh, uh, avocado if I was laid laid down on, on it as well. So, but uh, uh, many, many I like olive trees. I like really natural olives as well. So I think there's a way to do that without lots of oils and salts and and um, different natural processes to get raw uh, um, olives as well. So yeah. I'm like, you bring me back to my childhood. I mean, I grew up in Israel and in Israel, uh, they are protective, the olive oils. And um, if you do have one and my, my uncle had one in his backyard and he used to make his own olives, which was just to taste them completely completely different than what you get at the store today oh so much different and and i i've i have a lot of greek friends and a lot of turkish friends and and 
they all do all of this different. I had a big debate with a, a, a huge olive producer in, in uh, from Greece, and I says, "I want natural olives. I want them water bathed, uh, no salts, no no vinegars, no oils, no, none of that. I just want them raw and natural, no processing." He's like, oh, "That's not possible. We can't do that. That's not." That doesn't work. I was like, no, it works. And they're really good. You know, these big, huge yeah. green olives and that. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's really specific, though. And this is what you touched upon. And I, I like that you, you said that. It's really specific on where you're at in the world, where you live, where you're from, where those trees are being planted. And that goes back to a little bit of what I said as well. It's, it's up to the indigenous microorganisms of the area where you're standing, where you live, where you plant those trees, what will work the best, what kind of tropical or conditions are, what kind of uh, um, conditions are, are for, for planting, for agriculture, or for trees, period, in, in those areas, because there is an anywhere, even on degraded soils or deforested, uh, decertified uh, soils, there is um, probably not much, but there is even an, an indigenous microorganism that can be found in those areas that can really thrive and replenish those areas. And so it's always best to work with those as well. And uh, in, in farming, we call them IMOs, so short for indigenous microorganisms, and, and try to use mycorrhiza as well. So um, Lynn Margulis was one of the first to really talk a lot about mycorrhiza, um, but it's, it's also something that's very specific. There's thousands and hundreds of thousands of different types of mycorrhiza. But if you've ever seen trees growing out of the side of a cliff or amongst rocks, you're like, how is that possible? There's hardly any soil. Well, it's that mycorrhiza, which are these finite hair-like fungus particles, mycorrhiza uh, microorganisms that are so fine, they can get into the rocks and actually get the nutrients and, and what they need not only to hold that tree to, to something um, that is basically a rock, but also to get the, that water and that nutrients out of, out of the ground. And so that leads me nicely to the next question I have for you. And how do you find the right types of trees to plant in these different areas? And what areas of the world are you currently working in? And, and what's your progress to date? Tell us a little bit more on what you're working on, what's going on, uh, kind of what your numbers are, catch us up to speed. Okay. So um, we have planted different continents, different places. I mentioned Kenya, there is Tanzania, Uganda, Armenia, Thailand. Uh, we're about to plant in Brazil, Guatemala. I know I'm missing a few. And we do have experts in our organization, but as, men, as much as those experts are experts, we use the knowledge of the organization we work on at the ground. They know best. And I am a true believer in going back to the source and understanding what is it that works there? Because um, I, I can tell them, okay, listen, this and that tree is perfect and it worked great in the town next door but there is something that isn't working right here because of an animal that is um, colliding with it or any other story that doesn't fit. So always appreciating and listening and taking into consideration what's happening at the ground. We are here to support. I'm not here to tell them this is what you need to plant. You, you mentioned kind of animals integrating with, with some of the plants. Are there any learning lessons, any things that you guys have seen when, when you run into planting certain trees and you realize, boy, they're 
eaten before they can even get big enough to survive by by animals or the animals are disrupting them what are you seeing in that respect so i mean new york is a perfect example uh, this is where i live and i also planted a forest in in my area and one of the things i keep on seeing is the deers they are just running through eating everything alive so i have to make sure this is not I want to give those trees a fair chance, uh, but it goes both ways. We are reforesting so the animals will have a place to be, a place to stay. The project in Armenia is a corridor to reforest again and create a corridor between the lands because there were so many patches of lands that you start seeing animals just don't have areas to, to live in. And this is a problem we whether you believe COVID-19 was made in a lab or not made in a lab, but part of the diseases we are starting to see is because animals don't have an area to live in, and the forest is their natural area to live. Um, a jungle in Panama, we saw the indigenous people starting to cut down pieces of the jungle, and then we start seeing an issue with the jaguars, and then how do you bring them back? They, this is their natural habitat. Let's help them. I, I'm specifically on the deer that you mentioned. So I used to own a company um, in the United States as as well that did a lot with deer and elk and and that and a lot of a lot of deer, elk, and white-tailed deer. They eat the birch trees, aspen trees. They eat the bark off the trees. That's kind of their oh, a white type of a tree anyway but if you see there's these black marks on them um, and that's where they're actually eating that and I, you know you sometimes you'll see the deer actually kind of like up against the tree high trying to reach their neck as high as possible eating the bark off so it's really good to to know those type of things but also as you mentioned the covid um, there's a big new thing coming out especially in the united states that these white tailed deer have a, a form of sars and cove 2 covid 2 that um, is much more worse than than uh, covid 19 and can spread very easily to the human population. We don't have really much help for that right now. And it goes through agriculture. So it'll go first for the white-tailed deer to animal agriculture, cows or pigs or sheep, or and then can transfer into to human populations as, as well. I, I don't necessarily believe at all, and I'm not controversial at all or esoteric, uh, that uh, that the COVID started in a lab. But what I do believe is that it's a, it's a biome issue. When uh, it emerged in the Wuhan area was really because of our biome. In the area where it emerged is a heavy industrial area with a lot of pollution and, and um, cyanide in the air but also heavy industrial agriculture. And it was right around the time of, of spraying pesticides and chemicals for that industrial agriculture. So there's a lot of air pollution, a lot of um, chemicals and bad air going around that area. And just the perfect storm mixed with the wet market, I think really uh, induced that spread. Whether we would have air travel or not, I would, I, I strongly believe that that the COVID would have spread 10 to 20 days across the entire world anyway, just because of the air, the way our airstreams move around the world, that it would have spread anywhere. But because we travel, it spreads even faster in an exponential way. But it's tied to to trees. It's tied to agriculture. It's tied to those animals that eat those trees. And um, I, I think we had this discussion before when we talked about it at H Farm. I had just come out with a book with Harold that was printed on rock paper. And I was printing and getting ready on another book that was printed on rock paper before. And I said, this fabulous innovation, a tree um, we cut it down, we use it for toilet paper, we use it for books to write on, but it's, it's the, our, our world's most wonderful innovation. It, it captures carbon, it creates oxygen, it cleans our, 
uh, our, our air. It it uh, you know does photosynthesis, provides water, provides yeah. water heals our soils. It, it actually does this wood wide web that uh, 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 helps support mycorrhiza growth. It helps support fungus growth. It helps support the health of our soils around it's that. It's also and, medicine, um, uh, mental health. Even our cosmetics goes back to trees. So it's, yeah, it's it, moving in any way, anywhere you go, you'll see trees, whether you like it or not. I agree. And you say this quite a bit that trees are an innovation, but I'd like to hear some more, maybe some of the things that you discussed in your TED talk uh, or why you tell people it's an innovation and, and do you find it hard to convince them of that? You know, they're they're looking for some kind of new carbon capturing method or some some real new type of innovation out there. And then you say, but you know what? Really, this is an innovation. And is that a struggle to make that um, distinction or to get investments or to get people around that? Say, no, that's not innovation. That's always been here. Or what what are your experiences? And can you tell us maybe a little bit more how you you talk about that. So one of the things that we keep on seeing is we want immediate results in everything. I mean, you click a button, you order something on Amazon, you want it yesterday. So the same is with solving this. And we are saying, okay, we are very intelligent species and we can invent a solution. However, I, I'm coming from the as, as an entrepreneur and from the tech world. And I did invent, I had an IoT company that it's an internet of things. I had a hardware solution to balance screen time. And I realized that part of us balancing our screen time is understanding that we also need to regulate ourselves and we also need to internalize the change in ourselves. So going to the trees is, there is a solution. It's a simple one. We don't need to make, to invent something new. And by the way, when you invent something, it also takes things. First of all, it takes time. It takes money. It takes emissions. You need to mobilize it. So now you bring back, even when you create the car, right? Your car is, before you, even you drove it for the first time, you have a huge carbon footprint. So why bring a technology that will have a huge impact on what you're trying to fix in a negative way versus try to look at whatever is there. So this is how I see things. And again, it's not something that I, I came up right away. I was looking for a solution. I was looking for that technology and then realizing, well, don't need to look that far. Um, we also need to remember that it's not right away. I cannot, it takes time for trees to grow. It takes time for us to plant it. Um, when you plant, there is a lot of politics going in, um, distribution of money. I was talking about maintenance. Um, one of the things that I bring on the talk is I, I bring an example of the Great Green Wall of Africa, which is a project I was not involved in. I was just, I was curious. And this is an ambitious project that started in 2007. And the goal for it is, is to create a natural wall throughout the entire width of Africa, uh, combining different countries, which is amazing if we can do it, because again, it's collaboration between people. And it's been 14 years. Majority of it didn't happen. I think it's just 14% only or 15% only planted. 80% of it failed. And the 20% that did succeed was going towards, you mentioned it before, it's agroforestry. And this is bringing the communities, bringing the farmers, teaching them basic irrigations, uh, showing them that the trees are not um, in any, sort of way intimidating or taking away their jobs or their income, they're actually helping them. Because the second you bring in the trees, you mentioned water, you mentioned soil. I, 
I got a chance to speak with an organization somewhere in the world that asked us for funding for their planting. And each and every tree planting project goes through tons of paperwork and checking and balances and interviews. And at one of those discussions, I, I started to ask her, so tell me a little bit what, what's happening? Why do you think the trees could help you? And she said, we have a lot of mudslides and there is droughts on one hand and there is, is heavy rain, which create those mudslides and washes away the entire village. And the goal is to plant, and then they were working on creating um, mud ovens so they'll be able to cook and, and work and sustain themselves. And I asked, so what do you do with those trees? And she told me, we grow them for firewood. And I said, this is great because you do need firewood to work your oven. However, you still need other forests because this is what will stop the mudslides. This is what will stop all those natural disasters, not right away, not tomorrow, but it will take time. And people are not ready to wait. As I said, we want that immediate verification right now, right here, right now. And this is where technology comes in and trees are not. So it's a little hard to get money to convince people that this is this brilliant technology that we need to invest in. I'm still hopeful. Otherwise I wouldn't continue doing what I'm doing. I still feel that there is place for those trees as the research said, 3.04 trillion trees. This is by the way, approximately $5 trillion funding. That is it. And the UN, and other countries gave more than that. So we can do that. We just need to willingly say, let's invest in that technology. It's brilliant and it's alive and it's ancient and it is working. It has proven to be working. It clears our air, it gives us, we talked about it, but we can talk again. Is there um, a way that it can be a new economic model, so an ecological economic model where it's self-sustaining. So what I mean by that is that not only are you planting trees, but through those trees, you're getting the, the necessary seeds or those uh, hybrids or those genetic uh, trees that really have not just resilience, but are good breeds that will, you know, grow fast, grow strong, survive um, most of the things, but also that you start your own nursery, your own seed banking out of those trees that you, that you uh, are planting, that it becomes kind of a circular process that <clears throat> it's self-sustaining, but also pays for itself. Maybe that you use in certain areas, perennials that have other uh, added benefits to not only feed livestock or to, to, to feed humans in one way, um, but also can maybe provide an income to go ahead and generate and plant more trees. Are you thinking in that, that direction as well? Or is it more or less that you're, you're looking for monies to plant trees uh, until, until you get enough there? Or is there a, a longer term sustainable model out of this? So some of the projects that we are working in, for example, in Tanzania, uh, where we are reforesting the Ark Mountains of Tanzania, um, the students and the local, it's, it's interesting, it's, it's the peasant women that go back to the forest and collect those seeds, germinate, go back to the, the nursery, germinate them, sprout them, and enabling the kids in the community to go back and plant them, um, which is, again, go back to as being us as being part of that ecosystem because we create jobs, we give meaning, and, and and we're allowing them to also appreciate what they see and, and how it works. So yes, um, 
collecting those seeds and then you can replant them. We still need to continue maintaining and, and supporting those communities because they still need funding. This is not enough to just go collect the seeds. You need to stay, I mean, you need to pay the bills and there's electricity and all those things. We talked a little bit about COP 2016 at the beginning. Um, one of the things that I did see there was the vertical farming. And one of the things I got to speak with the founder there and to see other things that can be done with that. And one of the things is those tree seeds that once we grow them in vertical farming are usually more resilient. Again, I'm quoting what they told me. I'm, I'm not 100% sure it is correct. It makes sense, uh, that, but they are more resilient and then you can go and, and plant them back. So we have that um, seed bank in a way. And so if people do not know, seed bank exists of all plants and, and, and trees and other um, grown, um, missing the word here, but... Um, yeah, so I, I, I totally agree. So I do a lot around hydroponics and, and vertical farming. It's called controlled environmental agriculture, closed systems. Uh, that's a great way to do seed banking, also to do germination, get to seedlings, and then you can then transfer them into actual plant, planting them into to soil. The, the key factor is, is most, uh, most of those um, vertical farms or those around the world, there's probably to date roughly around 1600 in the world and, and only about not even 10 that are very successful. But even those 10 that are successful are not producing 100% of their own renewable energy. They're not using battery backups. They're not using efficient energy usage of HVAC and water management. They're, they're efficient, but they're still working off of fossil fuels or other type of energies that they're getting their seeds from somewhere else. Uh, they're not doing a complete closed system, uh, kind of this cradle to cradle or circular economy type of a closed system. So I totally agree. If you do it in the right way, that that is the smartest way to do it. And um, then it's something that can continue to sustain itself to, to move to uh, those areas where then it can be the be planted. There's much more uh, at this, this big movement. I, I mentioned that I spoke to Alan Savory uh, on, on the podcast before yours and, and it, there's this big movement of rewilding. So we've, we've done some amazing um, long-term studies and experimentation, so to say, with the national parks and preserves and conservation, where we've taken huge areas in Africa and all around the world where we get these national parks there, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of acres and hectares of land that we try to preserve and conserve um, that we're still seeing now 10, 20, 30 years later that they're still, even though they're pristine, fenced off, protected, that there's still degradation, desertification, and destruction going on there, even though we're not touching it, we're not doing anything. And that's because um, there are certain things that happen in nature naturally. Fires are an intervention. There's a, a, a management of, of land where we move agriculture animals through that land to help regenerate the soils in that. And also the, the type of, uh, of uh, climate impact that is occurring in that and how, how we deal with that nature. And so, I think there are some tools out there. I wouldn't say they're they're 100% free, but they're pretty darn close. I mean, um, photosynthesis, solar, and, and a lot of those things of rewilding processes are pretty, pretty good. And if we set them up in the right way, we can get these food forests or we can get these forests that uh, provide new growth and provide food that, that really uh, can do things. And... Um, I think his name is John Liu. Are you familiar with him? Of yeah, the res restoration group, John Liu? Yes. And so one thing that I, I, I want us to remember is 
nature will regenerate itself. The forest will regenerate itself. You mentioned fires as one of the one of the natural things. Um, I got a chance to speak with a forest and fire ecologist after the first fire in California. And one of the things that he was explaining that we do need the fires. And for example, the way that um, the sequoia tree seed is germinated is by fire. And it is us that are interfering and creating a damage that brings those fire to become deadly and spreading in, in, in such a way that we see right now. We obviously have now uh, rising temperatures and, and houses are too close to wild areas that this is why all those things are happening, but this is natural and, and real. And I recently saw a photo in, in Colombia of a crater where everything around it looks very bare. Inside there is a natural jungle that's created because nobody was touching it. Nobody was doing anything. And unfortunately, if we will continue in the way that we are right now, we will we'll not be here to see how nature corrects itself. And it will. So it's up to us to basically wake up and say, okay, I get it, I respect it, and I'll start following the rules of nature. I love that. Okay, I have five more questions for you, and then, then we're uh, close to the end of our time. The, the first one is, are you a global citizen, and how would you feel about a world with the removal of all our borders, walls, and limitations? And what is your view and understanding of this? Um, so yes, I am a global citizen. I, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I was born in Israel and I live in the United States and I belong to both countries and neither. I belong everywhere. I will also say that um, I see two nations in this world, the sea and the land. And for, I will even correct it, the sea and the trees. So trees are the second largest nation and I wanna be part of that, that nation. It's not you or me or um, men, women, colors, Religion, at the end of the day, we're just another species, the human species, and I don't see a reason why we should be separated by borders. Uh, yeah, the, what, the nation of plants is definitely bigger than, than any other uh, species on earth. Uh, uh, the next question is the hardest one I have for you today. It's the burning question, WTF, and it's not the swear word, it's what's the futures? and plural, uh, I want to know what your specific vision is, not anyone else's, of what's the future? Where do we need to go? And where are we going? And what's your hope? What's the future? That's a, that's a very tough question. My future is a future where my kids can grow in an area where it's green, when they can breathe air and see sunlight and enjoy a clean ocean and drink water without worrying and play around without thinking of tomorrow. And we'll get there. We will, we just need to come together for that. How, how do you feel about the sustainable development goals? How are you implementing them and onetrillion.org? Um, and do you have a belief that we'll reach the goals by December 2030? Uh, and you're also your feelings on the Paris Agreement, uh, if, if we'll make it. Uh, well, you said we didn't make it already when we started. You said we're, we're past the two degrees. So we didn't make the Paris Agreement. Hopefully we'll make uh, the SDGs goals by 2030. Um, 
I'm not waiting for somebody else to do it. So I'm part of another, a few organizations. Uh, part of it is a movement called Catalyst 2030, where it's amazing people, amazing organizations that are working towards achieving those goals by 2030. Um, the notion currently is saying that if we wait and do it by the UN, we'll get there by 2087. And this is a bit, <laughs> a bit too late. Um, One Trillion is working on two of them, is number 13 and number 15. One of them is uh, land, life on land, and the other one is the environment. And this is the trees which are fighting climate change per se, and then planting with communities is helping people while at the same time helping animals. So all, all 17 sustainable development goals are tied to agriculture, seafood, food and beverages, but they're all a system. It's virtually impossible to work just on one or two and not touch on, on the other ones. Um, just from what I know from you and, and your organization, I can tell you that you're already working on 11 of them. And if you're, if you're not actively pushing all 11 of those, um, you, you, you uh, I got to, I got to put your feet to the fire. You got to step up to the plate and work on them because uh, um, zero hunger, good health and well-being, uh, climate action, life on land, life below water, and and eleven of them are all tied to not just tree planting, but to the system of solving the problem that we're in for climate uh, climate change and how trees can really help in that, in that system. So wherever you're planting those trees and how you want to reserve, uh, restore, conserve, and heal the environment there, you're healing the soils, you're uh, helping to produce oxygen, you're helping to clean the air, you're capturing carbon, but you're also educating, you're also possibly providing and a food forest or a form of food or a supporting infrastructure to absorb water, to, to right. stop deforestation and flood. And that has a ripple effect to empower women, empower girls to help with zero hunger for food, to help with education, to connect people back to nature. Um, there are so many ways that it ties into there. So don't forget those. Please don't cherry pick the SDGs. I know that there's many things that you can do to, to help in that respect and, and, and to move forward. And, and it's a better business model. It's a new economy for the world, at least till 2030. Whether I, I'm optimistic and hopefully believe we will achieve it, we'll hit that exponential roadmap. I have faith in humanity. I have faith in organizations like you and and those who take actions that, that we can achieve it. Uh, we all need to do it together and we need to see it as a system. The more we get into that siloed approach, uh, the more we will fail and not achieve those things. The last Sorry. question I have- Wait, Before you get there- so Sure, go ahead. Thing I, I wanted to mention is um, one of the, the projects in Kenya that like helped us shape where we are right now. Um, you mentioned the rest of the SDGs. Obviously, we don't label them because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter those labels. It's the result, the end result. And yes, we did have the project of planting. We did educate the kids. There was also the, the aspect of the pandemic. In addition to that, there were two other unrelated projects that were added, actually three. One of them is solar light, so the kids can, there was, there's no electricity in that village. So the kids can read in the dark after school. Um, the second one is compost toilet that replaced the pit toilet that contaminated the underground um, water. The third one is clean water station that enables those kids to drink or the entire village to drink clean water and wash their hands. And I was talking about that ecosystem and closing that loop before. I loved to see how each and every component got together and filled in the puzzle. So 
water station, the gray, the gray water that came out went to um, water a tree. The compost from the compost toilet when it's harvested after 12 months went to fertilize a tree. And I, again, the pandemic was tough on all of us and I'm living, breathing, dreaming those trees all along all the time and, and all the organization I work with know that. So they keep on sending me all those things. And I got up one morning and I got this video which brought me to tears. And that was a birthday celebration of the compost toilet where they sang happy birthday. The entire community was there. They harvested the compost. They sang happy birthday to the compost and went to fertilize a tree. And it shows you how this is bigger than one SDG or another, or those labeling. It's just the impact of those trees on our life and how they are improving our well-being while at the same time helping us stay in this planet alive by clearing out carbon from the atmosphere. Love it. I love it. If there was one message you could depart to our listeners as a sustainable takeaway, and even if it's a couple messages uh, that has the power to change their life, what would it be your messages? My message. Okay. Uh, okay. So the ecological value of trees to our environment is undeniable. I mean, we talked about it for an hour now. And when we only look at trees as a technology for solving climate change, we are missing an incredible opportunity to do something much bigger, to not just protect the planet and mitigate climate change, but also to foster and support communities that live on it. When it comes to planting trees with communities, I, I said it and I'll say it again, we need to think globally, but act locally. We should consider how we plant and, and ask ourselves, who do we plan for? Not what do we plan for? Basically repositioning the tree's role in, in human life, not just as a carbon sequestrator, but as, as a force to meet people's daily needs while at the same time allowing the community to reconnect to nature. And, and this is for me answers this call. Trees are not another unique technology, they are the technology and they have a bigger role to play in the grand scheme of things and in our communities. We need to make sure we are not missing it. Love it. Kelly, thank you so much for letting us all inside of your ideas. It's uh, a sheer pleasure to see you. It's glad that we could see each other so soon after COP26. And uh, I'm, I know we'll be seeing a lot more of you. I want to follow up again in another year, see what the progress is. And um, I'm sure you'll have many more stories to tell us. Unless there's something else you'd like to add, that's all I have for you. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And it was interesting being on the other side and not asking the questions all the time. It was hard for me not to ask you all the questions. So next time you'll be on my show. <laughs> I, I, I would love that. That would be great to come over on the butterfly effect. That'll be great. Uh, uh, Kim Pullman, Paul Pullman's wife, she does Reboot the Future. and She does a lot with the imaginal cells. And, and I think that's a fabulous book as well. But I would, I would love to talk to you about that. That would be so fun. So I wish you well, and we'll talk very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye.